invite you to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2, we'll be looking at Acts 8 in a moment, but Isaiah 2 is where we will begin. It's hard to obey parents, we've learned in growing up in homes, when they want you to do something that you don't want to do. Now, if a parent is a hypocrite, that becomes really hard. You have a lazy, cowardly, freeloading, slovenly couch potato of a dad who's plopped on a recliner in the living room, a beer in one hand and the remote control in the other, and yells at his lazy, cowardly teenage son to go find a job. It's pretty hard then, isn't it? But, you know, it really isn't any more agreeable when the command comes from parents who are the perfect example of what they are requiring their child to do. It's actually easier to justify disobedience of a hypocritical parent. But when it comes to a faithful parent, a faithful parent requires a child to do a hard thing, even something good, something the parent exemplifies. That can prove pretty difficult to obey. And we understand this not only on a human level, but we understand this in relating to our God. God is our Heavenly Father. I mean, honestly, there may be no command that is more difficult than when our Father says to us, I want you to love outcasts and I want you to love your enemies. Outcasts are people that we find comfort in keeping out of our company. And enemies are people we find pleasure despising or at least ignoring. But our Heavenly Father comes along and in all seriousness says, love your enemies and draw in the outcasts. Now in an unguarded moment, we can just say, who does God think he is? I don't like this. This is hard. This is difficult to do such a thing. It comes so unnaturally. Yet in a more mature response, we will gladly acknowledge that our Father who's asking us to do this, that's exactly who He is. He is the God who sacrifices His Son to rescue spiritual outcasts and enemies. God commands that we love our enemies because it is His nature to love His enemies. God commands us to love outcasts because it is His nature to seek out and to draw in the outcast. Indeed, our Father tirelessly labors by His Spirit to seek out and to draw in outcasts for His own possession. Isaiah 2, look at it here. Isaiah 2 and verse 2. As we think of this prophet, now, think of it in the context of God's electing love for Israel. Israel is his own. She is his special possession. She has been chosen out of the nations. And yet, here at the start of this prophecy, we read, Isaiah 2 and verse 2, that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he shall judge between the nations." 
and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn any war anymore. What are they learning? They're learning at the feet of Messiah. They're hearing the truth of God. They're responding to it. The nations. Now as this vision unfolds, it is a vision of God restoring His people, strengthening them, reviving them, but it includes a bringing in of the nations, of the Gentiles. Let's go to chapter 56 of this prophecy. Isaiah 56, and here we find reference to some who are outcasts and aliens and strangers and enemies of Israel who will be drawn in by this saving project of God. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. All that can refer to Israel, but look next, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners, eunuchs separated from the worship of God by stipulation, foreigners, outcasts, Gentiles, who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the Lord, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Eunuchs not permitted into the temple area, Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1. Gentiles restricted in access to the temple area, but here a vision of bringing in these outcasts, bringing them in to worship the Lord. Jesus' program to reach out and to draw in these outcasts links into this prophetic line. As Jesus says, in Acts 1 and verse 8, as we make our way back to this book, Acts 1 and verse 8, you will be my witnesses. Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we're watching in the first seven chapters as that program is taking place in Jerusalem. But then it moves out from there in the martyrdom of Stephen, the persecution that scatters the believers. They go north into Samaria. And in chapter 8, we read of Philip and this tremendous ministry that he has in reaching Samaritan villages for Christ, preaching the gospel, people trusting the word of the Lord. Chapter 8 and verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the rings from 
Jerusalem emanating out have reached into Samaria, these half-Jews. But now as we continue on in chapter 8, the ring, a further ring will extend out beyond these half-Jews, these Samaritans, and will encompass now one individual who doesn't really fit in anyone's category, but he's a little more removed than the half-Jew Samaritans. And the gospel will reach him as well. So from a fruitful mission in Samaria, we read next Philip's ministry to a single individual. Leaving the bustling villages of Samaria, Philip is led by the Spirit to the lonely southern extremities of Judea in order to talk to one man. Verse 26, The angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. That is, this road is a desolate road. But he is going to head down there. This angel dispatches Philip south of Jerusalem. Now, Philip is actively involved in Samaria. This is God's initiative. And that is, I think, a theme that needs to carry us through the remainder of this account. This is God who is at work. God is initiating this salvation program with this individual. But he sends Philip to do his bidding. We do not know if Philip accompanied Peter and John back to Jerusalem, verse 25, or if he was still evangelizing in the Samaritan villages, but in any event, it is quite a journey to head down now south of Jerusalem and toward Gaza and toward the sea, as you see on the map here. Verse 27, he rose and he went. He obeyed the Lord. And again, you see this, the flavor of the text. This is God's doing. God is seeking out a man, and he sends Philip to be the one who reaches this man. This 60-mile stretch of largely desolate roads, somewhere along here, coming eventually to Gaza, where then the desert stretches in and really gobbles up the road here at this place. But Gaza is the last town before you head into that desert, the last place to get water, and obviously considerably south of Jerusalem for uh, Philip. But he is taken down here. The Lord leads him here. The angel of the Lord speaking, the spirit of the Lord leading. He goes, verse 27, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasury. Here is this man. Philip will attach himself to him. This important man was the secretary of finance for the queen mother in Ethiopia. Candace is not a personal name, but is a royal name, a dynastic name. The Ethiopian kings were considered to be too holy to dirty their hands in secular affairs, and so the queen mother served as the administrative overseer while the king spent his days in leisure and being holy and a child of the sun. But Ethiopia is south of Egypt, about a thousand miles. Notice the next phrase. It says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, that's an amazing statement. I don't know. It may be that he had other duties in Jerusalem. It's not saying that he doesn't. But his purpose, his intention, was to come to Jerusalem to worship. Did you hear what I just said? A thousand miles. This isn't in an airplane. This is in a chariot, not a war chariot but some sort of cart that's being hauled across the ancient world a thousand miles, five months travel one way to get to Jerusalem to worship. 
He'd come to Jerusalem to seek God. What an amazing journey, this Ethiopian eunuch. Now, to be a eunuch for a man with this power was very common. It's common for officials of the royal court. Uh, he's a eunuch. He's castrated to assure his sex drive never beclouds his judgment or brings scandal to the realm. These courtiers would have worked in the palace area. They would have had contact with the king's harem. And to make sure that there was going to be no trouble, this was the common practice. But there is a tremendous tension here, isn't there? A eunuch. Deuteronomy 23.1, as I mentioned earlier, says, No one whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Not only this, but the man is a Gentile. He is limited to the court of the Gentiles. So he travels for five months, 1,000 miles, to worship God with this purpose in mind, and all he can really see is the wall in front of him that limits him from access into the temple as a eunuch and as an Ethiopian Gentile. We really don't know his status ultimately, whether he's a proselyte, one who has become a Jew, or if he is a God-fearer, one who worships the God of the Jews but is not uh, himself at this point considered a Jew. And that may well be the case. At any rate, he's an outcast. But remember Isaiah 56, verses 3 through 5, eunuchs are included in the list of outcasts who will participate in God's program to seek out and to draw in outcasts as God's people. That's a central theme to the book of Isaiah. There's this great prophetic hope of a restoration and even a reconstitution of God's people that includes these outcasts. And eunuchs no longer kept out of the temple will now have a name in it. This is God's program. How is that program going to be worked out? Well, it's going to be worked out by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at this point, we simply understand that he's come to Jerusalem to worship, and he is returning, verse 28, seated on his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Whether as a proselyte, whether as a God-fearer, he has a copy of the Scriptures, whether Greek or Hebrew, a Hebrew original language, or whether it was Greek translation. None of this is really important, but what matters here is that he has a scroll of the Scriptures. Now, that's pretty amazing. You don't go to your corner drugstore or even Christian bookstore to get a Bible in this day. To have a scroll of the Scriptures means you have wealth and you have opportunity, and somehow this man has secured the Scriptures, having come to Jerusalem, and he is reading these Scriptures. But then we see, verse 29, again, God's initiative. I mean, is God working here? Is this man reading the text of Scripture? And the Spirit, verse 29, said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. I don't know if God airlifted Philip here on this direction. He apparently does on the way back, but maybe doesn't want to scare them, and so he puts them down far enough away that he's got to run to catch them. He runs, verse 30, to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? We see God's initiative. It's the Spirit of God that sends Philip to join with this chariot. God is seeking out here. He's chasing down and drawing in an Ethiopian Gentile, a eunuch, as his own. 
You see Philip there kind of jogging alongside, joining up with this cart or chariot, whatever it looked like. And he hears him reading. Hey, man, do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand this? No. And if someone doesn't explain some things to me, I'm never going to understand this. Providentially, what is he reading? Verse 32, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. What does that mean, Christian? In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? You can't, for his life is taken away from the earth. Who's that talking about, Christian? The eunuch says, I have no idea. I can't figure this out. There's no concept of the prophetic messianic meaning of this passage in the Hebrew Bible for this man. He may have heard some of the interpretation of the rabbis. Some of them thought it was Isaiah. Some of them thought it might refer to Israel. Some thought another prophet such as Elijah. Or even some thought it might be Messiah. But isn't it interesting that this man makes a thousand mile journey that takes him five months in order to worship in Jerusalem and he leaves with no knowledge of Christ. He even has purchased in some way a scroll, the Scriptures, but he doesn't know who Jesus is. What the rabbis could not discern, the Christians were anxious to proclaim. Jesus had taught them how to read the Scriptures. He had taught them how to see passages like this, not as confusing, but as pointing to the ultimate man of salvation, the Messiah. I know of whom the prophet speaks, says Philip. Indeed, I know the one he's speaking about. Let me show you in the scroll. He starts right there with Isaiah 53. What a perfect place to start as he speaks about the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sin of the sinner placed upon this Lamb of God who pays who suffers in the stead of sinners. And here Philip has the joy of preaching Christ to this man, undoubtedly ending his message with an appeal for him to be baptized, to identify with Christ, as Peter does in Acts chapter 2. Verse 36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? It might also be that the eunuch would have understood as a proselyte or God-fearer that baptism was the symbol of repentance and conversion. All he knows is, I have now found the answer. I've been seeking God at great cost, great personal cost, but I've found Him. I've found Him in the person of Jesus Christ. I want to be baptized in His name. Here is water. Not water he had with him. Traveling there in the desert, he would have had water with him. But here is water on location where I can be baptized. Now, your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. As you come to verse 36, you come to verse 38. There's no verse 37 in the text of Scripture here. I have, as the pattern of my study, have Paul work up ahead of time a, the Greek text, one page 
for each verse that I'm going to preach on. When I got my stack back through this, I was paging through it and I said, ah, somehow he missed verse 37. And I was looking all over for the verse 37. Then I went to the Bible, it's not even there, verse 37. I thought, what's going on? I knew what was going on. But you ask the question, what's going on here? I remembered, of course, verse 37. There is virtually unimpeachable evidence in my thinking that this verse was added to the original text of Scripture. It was not original to the documents of Scripture, and that is why it is removed from virtually every modern translation. That's not because anybody's trying to take something out. It's because they're trying to preserve what was original. Originally, I think what we have here is what the text read. Some added, apparently some scribes added, or a scribe and others following him, and Philip said, this is verse 37 in some translations, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now there are a number, as I said, compelling reasons to conclude that this verse was added by a scribe and not original. I don't want to get into those, but some are very strong arguments. However, it's prob- it probably reflects an ancient confessional formula that accurately depicts the belief of the early church in baptism. Their belief was that those who place conscious faith in Christ, who see Him as Lord and Savior, are those who then stand with Him and identify with Him in the waters of baptism. So verse 37 doesn't hurt anything if we have it there. But I just think that there's strong evidence that it wasn't original and that's why it's not here. But that is a consistent pattern in the book of Acts. It's those who respond in faith who then stand in the waters of baptism and identify with Christ in this way, which is what the man does. I'm sure that Philip did say something to him more than what we find right here. I mean, this would be the most curt conversation imaginable. Obviously, there's much more that's said. He's explaining the scriptures to him. Calling him to baptism, the man responds in verse 38, He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Here echoes of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, don't we? All authority is given to Christ. His witnesses are to go into all the world and proclaim his name. They are to respond to that message and then to be baptized to identify with Christ in the waters of baptism. And this baptism, let us say quite clearly here, is immersion. It's almost humorous to watch people who believe in paedo-baptism, infant baptism, dance through this text. But these men go down into the water. They're going below the surface into the water, both of them, and they're both coming up out of the water. It's clearly immersion that is in view here. In fact, that's what the word baptize means, to immerse or to submerge in water. So Philip did not bend down and scoop up a handful of water and sprinkle the eunuch. They both go down into the water. They both come up out of the water. It was necessary for them to do this. It's an important feature of this passage. It is not, a, I don't think, the most significant point, but it certainly teaches us about Christian baptism. And I would say in light of this passage, if you are born again, a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, and have never walked down into a body of water with a baptizer and declared your faith in Christ by being fully submerged under water, you have never been baptized. 
and you need to be baptized if you truly are a born-again believer in Christ. If you were submerged in water before you came to a knowledge of the gospel, you need to be baptized. And in fact, many have followed that pattern in this church over the years. Numerous people have been immersed before they came to Christ as Savior, or who were sprinkled as an infant, in one case a man who was poured as an adult, but in all of these cases, this long history in our church of individuals, I've never heard of anyone who said, I regretted being baptized again by immersion in the name of Christ. To follow the biblical pattern brings confidence. It is obedient to Christ. And I would encourage all of us to line our lives up with what Jesus said. The message goes out, it is responded to in faith, and those who respond enter into the, wor- the waters of baptism to be submerged, identifying with the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. If you're trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior from sin, baptism will not help you get to heaven, but baptism will say, I am one of God's people, and will be a declaration to others that you belong to Jesus Christ. Now the eunuch story here is an example. It's not a pattern. Remember, there's no church in Gaza. There aren't believers that are there, and he is not identified with a body of believers. I don't think it's a right pattern to follow that whenever a person gets baptized, we just find water anywhere, whoever we're with, and baptize them. Rather, this is now today a way of entering into the communion of the church, of a local church, of the body of Christ. But this is a unique setting. There is no church in Gaza. He's not heading back to the church in Ethiopia. He is the church in Ethiopia in one sense of the term, in the most broad sense of the term. But he must head back there and proclaim the gospel as a follower of Christ. And so he is baptized before Philip and undoubtedly before others in the caravan who would have been providing him great protection as this important man journeyed down south of Egypt into what is modern-day Sudan. So he's baptized, and they come up out of the water, verse 39. The Spirit of the Lord then carries Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Jerusalem is behind him. This man who has taught him the scriptures, who he must have deeply appreciated, is now gone. There's a thousand-mile journey ahead of him, making his way to Sudan, but he rejoices. He rejoices because for the first time in his life, he knew his sins had been forgiven. He figured out who the suffering substitute was. He rejoiced to have met Philip, but now, to the end of his days, his soul rejoices that he has met Jesus. Irenaeus, an early church writer, wrote in Against Heresies that the eunuch returned to Ethiopia and became a faithful evangelist. It's very easy to believe. We can't really prove it as such. But what we do know is this outcast eunuch joined the holy priesthood of Jesus' followers. An amazing account of restoration and drawing the outcast in. For his part, Philip went right on preaching. Apparently, he was beamed up by the Spirit from off this desolate road. That is the most natural way of reading this. Verse 40, Philip found himself at Ozitus. So he 
the eunuch sees him no more because the Spirit of the Lord carries him away and places him at Ozitus some ways away up north on the coastline, as you see here in the map. He's going to make his way up. He passes through, verse 40 says, preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. You see Caesarea far to the north. So Philip has made a circuitous journey from Jerusalem up north to Samaria, back down to Jerusalem, across to Gaza, Azotus, Lydda, on his way up to Caesarea by the sea. You know where we find him 20 years later? In Caesarea. It's just this spot that the Spirit of God wants to highlight the ministry of Philip. He continues to proclaim the gospel. He's a faithful man. There's four daughters that are proclaiming the word of the Lord there in Caesarea, where Philip now lives and probably has been for the last 20 years, maybe branching out from there in evangelistic endeavors. But it's just this particular place that he has emphasized. He's spotlighted because of the integral place of the evangelistic efforts that he has made in the overall working of God's saving purposes. Who's been saved to this point? Jews, chapters 1 through 7. Israelites living in Jerusalem. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Who's been saved to this point? Samaritans now, to the north, hearing the gospel of Christ. You will be my witnesses in Judea and in Samaria scattered because of that persecution, now proclaiming in these regions, and now it's branching out even further to this Ethiopian eunuch. He's tied to the Israelite faith. He's worshiping in Jerusalem. But this man is distinct. The gospel is reaching out further and further, and it's bridging the gap here, chapter 8, into chapter 9, where Saul of Tarsus will be converted and become the ultimate evangelist to the Gentiles, bridging into chapters 10 and 11, where a Gentile, a full-fledged Gentile, who's not worshiping God in this way, who's somehow unique, perhaps not a proselyte, but just a God-fearer, in contrast with this man, he also will be reached. So as we look at this passage, there's some intriguing things here. How does the Spirit of God lift this man? How, how did that go? There's intriguing things about baptism and intriguing things about this man making a 1,000-mile journey to seek God. There's intriguing things about him being a eunuch in the court of Candace in Ethiopia. Many intriguing things about this account, but the big thing is that God is at work. The Spirit of God is orchestrating and bringing people's paths to cross as he reaches out to an outcast and an alien and brings him in. God is always laboring to gather his own from among the outcasts and the enemies of this world. Always. That's our God. And honestly, we don't find that so natural. And in our immaturity, we don't want to cooperate with that program because we don't really feel comfortable talking to outcasts and to enemies. Outcasts and enemies are meant to be, well, outcasts and enemies. You don't share with them that which is closest to your heart. You don't share with them the love and the joy of your soul by nature. And so we bristle. But as we mature in Christ... We put away childish things. As we mature in Christ, we come to want those 
hard things that our parents demanded of us, and we want this hard thing that our Father calls us to, to proclaim the message to outcasts and enemies. In like manner, spiritual maturity will produce this passion to reach out. It's God's initiative. We see that through this passage. God's initiative to reach this eunuch and draw him in, this one who's been cut out. It's God who is at work. God who is picking up Philip and putting him down in the right place, giving him counsel and taking him on and saying, now up the coast, up to Caesarea, share my word. God is reaching a people for his name. While Acts 8 is a unique time in salvation history, and it's not to be copied, we shouldn't seek to reproduce all the aspects of this account, we can say God continues to actively work through His Spirit to seek out and to draw in sinners of all sorts. Do we really believe this? Do we believe that the Spirit of God is at work proclaiming the name of Jesus through God's people to a lost world? Do you believe that God orchestrates connections and allows paths to cross for the glory of his name? I believe he's doing that work. I see evidence of it here. There's evidences of it in my life. Very few, it seems, but there are some. I think of a couple years back, Beth and I were on a flight, and as we came down the aisle, we looked at where our seats were, and I suppose it's somewhat natural, but I saw a young woman sitting at the window and naturally ushered my wife to sit down next to her, and I sat on the aisle. If there was a man sitting there, perhaps I would have redone that. I don't know. But uh, just not really thinking much about it and a lot of details that went into this whole planning and on this particular flight, and as God works through all those sovereign things, we came down and my wife plopped down next to a young woman on this plane. And I noticed she had a book that had some sort of spirituality to it, and I thought that should be a good lead-in. It would be interesting to see if we can talk to this woman, engage her in conversation. And Beth did that, and they began to talk, and we all three began to talk. And this young woman told us, as I prepared for this flight, I prayed to God that I would sit next to a pastor's wife. We got some chills right about that point. God bringing paths to cross. I don't know if she trusted the Lord as Savior. I don't know her eternal situation. I know that she's heard the truth. And we had an interesting conversation. But God does this. A few years back, there was an unsaved relative that attended a funeral that I performed, and I heard word that this young man was seeking, was perhaps open to spiritual things, was separated from God, but, but seemed to be open. I did not have time and opportunity with the numbers of people there to talk with him. I met him, but I, it, there just was an opportunity to talk with him specifically about the gospel. I was a bit disappointed, and the next day, on some studies, I was heading to Chicago on another flight. I came up to the gate and was looking to sit in, that, in the terminal, waiting for my flight to come. There's this young man sitting right there. He's on the same flight. We sat together on the airplane and with open Bible in that 45 minutes that gets you from Minneapolis to Chicago, 
I shared with him the message of Scripture and Christ and his saving grace. I couldn't have orchestrated that in a hundred years. In fact, we tried really hard to meet with him and to talk with him. We didn't have opportunity. God's at work. The Spirit of God can get people to cross paths. I told you a few, maybe a couple months ago or a few weeks ago, the young boy in our neighborhood here. The story's continuing. We knew him as a little boy. He was close to us. We had a lot of fun with him in the neighborhood, my family, and Beth and I, and he moved away in a troubled situation, difficult life, very difficult, and he moved away, and we were shocked and grieved to read in the newspaper on the front page of some of the crimes that this young man had committed now in adulthood. In the providence of God, just a few weeks ago, that young man walked into my Bible study at the jail. We'd changed a lot, both of us. We didn't know each other, recognize one another, but when he gave me his name, I looked at him and I said, do you know who I am? Because I know who you are. I tell you, he wasn't real forthcoming on knowing me, but he, he, he warmed up when he realized he was, I wasn't somebody he'd ever harmed in any way. He then articulated where he was at, and it was so sad. This young man who's attended vacation Bible school and things like that here at the church, he articulated a thoroughly pagan view of life, trusting in some higher power, some great spirit there that was made of his own making, lost, godless. Through the weeks, this young man's heart has opened to Christ. And just in recent days, he's come to the Bible study, bringing other young people with him and articulating in very clear terms his trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. The Spirit of God is winning people to himself. He will bring paths to cross. He will bring witnesses to bear upon those that he is drawing to himself. Now, we are not going to reduplicate Acts chapter 8 by any means. And I don't have a long string of other stories like this. These are rare events. It was a rare event in Philip's life. I would imagine that most of his life was spent in Caesarea sharing the gospel of Christ much like we must. Working up contacts and chasing people. But in it all, let's not forget that the Spirit of God is always drawing. He is always going after the outcasts and the aliens and reconciling people to Himself. This thing with the Ethiopian eunuch is rare. It's unique. God is doing something and He's announcing a unique aspect to His program of evangelism. But this program, as unique as this setting is, is continuing to take place in our day in other ways. We can't wait around for unique encounters. We must chase people. We must chase opportunities. But please, may we never forget, the Spirit is always at work reaching the lost. He is driving people to Jesus Christ as Savior. The Father giving them to the Son and the Spirit leading them to see the glories of Jesus. God is doing this work. Do we believe it? Do we believe that he's doing that work now in our lives, in our area?
yesterday, a couple days ago, a lunch appointment, a meeting. There's a young man who sees me at the table and says, do you pastor the church there in Savage? I said, yes, I do. And he said, I, I'm not a Christian, but I've been to your church, and I believe you believe what you're saying. I, I need to come back again. All the times he's working, the times I go to a restaurant, they're not many. Here he is, right there. God's at work. God is always at work. And I wonder for us if we're aware of his work and if we are participating in it. Are we preparing ourselves to know how to articulate the gospel? Philip, I think, I'm reading into the text here, but I would assume he is jumping up and down with glee to be able to explain the scriptures to this man. Would we know what to say? I'll tell you, if you look, if you say, somebody came to me and said, how can I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven? And you say, that would scare me to death to know what to say. You need to do some homework. You need to be prepared such that God could use you so that you're able to articulate the gospel to an unbeliever in a way that is faithful and God-honoring. Can you do that? If not, there's your project. Work at it and work at it diligently. Secondly, are we praying? If we believe that the Spirit of God is indeed chasing out, finding, locating, drawing in outcasts and aliens to salvation in Christ, then we need to pray that He'd use us to say, I'm a willing servant. Spirit of God, lead me across the path of a needy soul and permit me to be faithful to proclaim your message so that that person can hear the truth and by your grace respond. Are we praying about that? I find it ironic. We are much quicker to pray about the salvation of certain individuals than we are to pray that I would be used to win someone to Christ. Isn't that kind of strange? God, save that person over there. That's good. It's right to pray for the salvation of the lost but we need to match those prayers with God. I am willing to proclaim your message. Open a door of opportunity. Lead me across someone's path that needs the Lord. And may I be faithful. Are we actively cooperating with the program, maturely cooperating with the program of Jesus as he builds his church? He's not at rest in this. There is joy in the heart of Christ to send out His Spirit and to bring in the outcasts, to reconcile the aliens, to bring those in darkness into the light, to open the blind eyes so that they see the truth, to bring the enemies to reconciliation. This is what He's doing. May we join Him in that work by His grace, by His mercy, and for anyone who is here that is separated from that grace, you have a beautiful example of what to do. To hear who Jesus is, that he has died to pay the penalty of sin, that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and is God's satisfaction of sin, the only Savior, the only name by which we must be saved, to repent 
and to respond in baptism, not to gain your salvation, but to demonstrate it. Here it is. Today is the day of salvation, perhaps for you. For those of us who know the Lord, it is the day of salvation. May God lead us across the paths of people that the Spirit of God is seeking out. And may we be faithful to open our mouths wisely, honorably, and to point people to Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, as we permit the Spirit of God to continue to teach, I pray that you would convict, drawing the lost to you, Christians to repentance. God, may we change. May we grow and may we know the joy as a church of doors opened wide, of people trusting Jesus as Savior. May we see that. God, it's not us. It's the Spirit of God who's doing the work. I pray that we'd be faithful and open and that we'd be seeking to win the lost to Christ. And thank you that this saving message has incorporated us. By your grace, for your glory, I pray that you will open our eyes to see the harvest, to enter into it for your glory. Through Christ I pray, amen.